0: Lord Jesus Christ, welcome back everybody to our study of the Everett Natinos. and we're picking up this evening with uh, hypothesis number 20 or I'm sorry yes 23 and uh, if you remember the, the general themes of these hypotheses as they're coming up are uh, avoiding uh, company with those who can bring us spiritual harm. So not allowing ourselves to be drawn into things that will have an effect upon our internal spiritual life uh, out of a sense of charity or obligation or hospitality uh, that always guarding and protecting that which is most precious within us. And then we'll move on to discussing not allowing ourselves to be drawn into worldly affairs even when uh, they, they seem to be something positive or justified that often again we can complicate our lives or be drawn into things that will agitate the mind and the heart and uh, have a negative effect upon our our life of prayer. And then uh, finally, we we might get to this hypothesis tonight, because the the next couple ones are rather short, uh, about how easy it is to sin in comparison to how hard it is to grow in virtue. And uh, sort of keeping that in mind in the spiritual life can be important, that uh, growth in virtue is something that often takes, you know, certainly a great deal of God's grace, but also effort over the course of time, years, decades, but falling into sin can be something that happens very quickly, as we all know. And so again, we're picking up on page 197 at the bottom of the page, the last paragraph. Be sober, my brother, and attend to yourself, for many are the wiles of the adversary. Indeed, if the enemy sees a brother who is zealous in the work of God, he stirs up one of the more negligent brothers against him, so that the latter abuses him unjustly and unreasonably, in order perhaps to lead the struggling brother into anger and the remembrance of wrongs, and in this way to obstruct his path to virtue and prepare him to fall into evil. If he sees him patiently enduring the abuse, praying for the one who is wronging him, he attempts to overthrow him in another way. He endeavors to make him a friend of one of the inattentive and lazy monks in order to blur his reasoning through such a friendship and confuse him with luxury and perhaps gradually to reduce him to indifference. But he who fears God will never love anyone without the wisdom from above. For as it is written, the wisdom that is from above is pure, then peaceable, and so on. So, the wiles of the devil that uh, within a community, as the uh, monk Ephraim is speaking of here, uh, is uh, draw one negligent brother drawing another in to sin or attempting to do so, or the evil one, more specifically, trying to use that relationship to undo both of them. And, uh, and if this fails, say, if, uh, if his temptation uh, to evoke anger in the brother uh, against the one who's negligent fails, then he will find some other way uh, to insert himself in that relationship, either to create hard feelings or to draw uh, one or the other down a particular path, to use individuals against each other. And so, again, we enter into the spiritual battle, not in an individualistic kind of way. We, we do so to protect ourselves and our own minds and our hearts, but also to protect others, knowing that we too uh, can become instruments of the temptation of, of the evil one, that we, uh, through the, our lack of charity towards the other, uh, can s- stir up anger, in someone. And uh, through our lack of watchfulness of heart and lack of watchfulness of our behaviors, you can uh, become a source of temptation for, for others to let go of their prayer or their zeal for the Lord in one way or the not- or another. But uh, again, you know, this paragraph really struck me as being powerful uh, because of the insights that the, the fathers have into uh, just how uh, uh, unrelenting the evil one can be in the spiritual battle and so when we hear this constant refrain to be watchful to be uh, mindful of God to remember God at, at every moment uh, to be attentive to what's going on in our mind in our heart it arises out of their experience that so deeply had they entered in to this life of prayer and had fostered this life of stillness that they could see what was going on within their own minds and hearts and how changeable the human mind and heart can be, that it only takes an instant to move us uh, in a certain direction if we're, we are so inclined or if we're in a mood or you know, by temperament, we are easily drawn in a certain direction. And so again, we don't, we don't uh, struggle outside of the, the sense that uh, we can affect others, either to lift them up or to draw them down. And so we aren't engaged in in this spiritual battle in an isolated fashion. Any thoughts or comments on this first paragraph? A good one to mark though, I think, and to reflect upon. Okay, from Abba Isaiah, letter C on page 198. Abba Isaiah said, if you wish to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and to crucify your old man with him, You should cut off those who bring you down from the cross and you should prepare yourself to endure abasement and still the hearts of those who provoke you. I think in one of the groups this past week, we talked about constantly living uh, within the Paschal mystery, a constant dying and rising in Christ, a dying to self, to sin and rising to new life in him and by his grace. And uh, we have to be conscious of this Especially when I think we are struggling and begin to strive to walk that narrow path. Uh, and others might seek to pull us away uh, from the cross itself as uh, uh, an integral part of this of the spiritual life. That if we are to participate in the life of Christ, and it is in and through the cross and his obedience to the Father. Uh, even unto death, uh, through which we are redeemed, then our path is is that as well. Again, this constant dying to self, to sin, to self-will, to judgment, opinion, in order to be most attentive to the will of God and to seek to embrace that. And there are always going to be voices within the world that say, you're being too hard on yourself or uh, a rigorous, a fanatic, uh, why strive on this level or why push yourself so hard and wh- why not relax a little bit and enjoy some of the things of the world. And uh, those could be very powerful voices, especially if they come to us uh, from fellow strugglers. It's not even from those who are more obviously within the world. I think for those who are walking the same path, uh, depending upon where they are in their own spiritual struggle, uh, when the cross presents itself or when they see someone struggling, uh, it often compels people to, to look at themselves and their own spiritual life. And when there is something that is witnessed there, where a person is really rising above a kind of sta- state of mediocrity and striving with all of their might toward Christ, uh, it can make people uncomfortable and uh, because it pushes Uh, want to a deeper self-reflection and they'll often want to to minimize that and we will often want to minimize that as well I think whenever we are confronted by someone who is living the the faith in a heroic fashion uh, it's not necessarily going to give us great joy you know it can make us it can make us uncomfortable internally and we have to be prepared for that that there can be these kinds of contradictions within us, that what we should rejoice over, we actually can find find at times to be unappealing or uh, something that's repulsive to us. And finally, from Abba Isaac, a foolish and thoughtless friend is a source of destruction. A source of sweetness is the conversation of sensible men. To make the unwise your companion is to bring sorrow to your heart. It is better to dwell with wild beasts than with those who behave badly. Indeed, to sit with vultures rather than with a greedy and insatiable man. Better to become the companion of a murderer than a quarrelsome man. Converse with a pig rather than a glutton, for a pig's trough is better than a gluttonous and insatiable mouth. Sit among lepers, rather than among arrogant men. Uh, rather strong language, of course. Uh, you know, r- rather to sit with a, a pig and uh, r- then have uh, a discussion with a gluttonous person or to be around a gluttonous person because, you know, certainly all these characters, a, a, murderer, a murderer, a pig, uh, a leper, you know, are less dangerous to us in the spiritual battle. And so to be in the presence of even one who is known for having committed evil acts, is not going to be a source of temptation for us as a person who wants to talk about others or a person who has an angry temper or is going to agitate the mind and the heart. And so again, you know, when we think about our, our life and the spiritual life, being attentive to what agitates the heart or what brings its stillness or a sense of sweetness is important. I think we, we grow uh, used to living in a world we, where we feel constantly agitated by all the things that we see going on, all the things that are reported. Uh, again, you know, we, we talk over a lot about the news, but uh, when you hear one story after another, well, there were you know, five or six murders in Pittsburgh yesterday Uh, It's hard not to have that agitate the mind and the heart. Not that we should be ignorant of such things or unmoved by them. But I think when we are constantly immersed in such things and conversation about them, let alone things that are uh, sinful, that it agitates the, the heart and it makes us lose a stillness that is hard won that all of us here know how difficult it is through prayer to move from the multiplicity of thoughts that we have or the intensity of feelings and emotions we might have to that place of stillness where the thoughts slow down and that we can experience a kind of peacefulness of heart and be attentive to God. You know, most often we're driven by the tyranny of our emotions that we can be all over the place in a given day. Uh, depending upon what we happen to experience and so how is it that we maintain a spirit of calm and attentiveness and peacefulness before God regardless of what we happen to experience Anthony this is how I learned there was something wrong with the Catholic commentators they left me agitated about the legal aspect of the faith Am I searching myself well enough? Did I do this good enough, Etc. Jansenism. So, you're right. You know, I think there are writings that can provoke that within, within the heart. You know, or, or I imagine you're speaking of commentators on scripture or on the, theology. You want to? clarify that, on the church, okay, in the state of the church, yeah, especially that today. I think uh, there is uh, so much strong emotion tied uh, to things such as liturgy or theology, and again, not as though those things are unimportant. They are important, but I, I think the form in which they're discussed and how they are discussed is important, and when we immerse ourselves in Uh, A form such as social media, where I think the the dialogue breaks down and and the language that is used is often very pointed and sharp, or where we aren't able to see a person face to face and hear the inflection of their voice, that it it agitates the heart. And uh, even, and I think even if we move away from that to something more basic, a kind of curiosity, that leads us from website to website, link to link, that attracts our attention. Uh, Even that can take away from us that internal stillness, because we are are flitting from one thing to another. And again, it doesn't have to be anything this bad. But I think if we are in a constant state of distraction, we lose that attentiveness to God and the presence of God. And so I think the goal in our day-to-day life is uh, to hold on to, again, to what is most precious, that stillness, in order that we can listen to God and be attentive to him, to be able to discern what, what is really going on in our life and the circumstances of our life and how God would want us to respond. How do we embrace the will of God in the moment? And so if we are distracted most moments of the day, that's going to become very difficult for us. Any comments on this last hypothesis at all? Any comment on it? Emma, where do we see the line between judging others versus judging their actions to know who to avoid? Well, I think you know, what we hear consistently from the fathers is that we are not to judge them you know, again, we judge the the behavior, the action, the language, and the impact that that might have upon us. For the person, we are always to maintain a clear sense of their dignity and of their identity, that regardless, even in terms of we see something that is overtly sinful, we are to strive not to lose that sense of charity. And as some of them have said that we are to uh, see how the tempter works in people's lives and direct that anger towards the, the one who draws them into sin or our, that sense of anger that arises out of the incense of faculty that we have of the soul, that, that we recognize something that is evil or sinful, and we are to become incensed at that. Anything that make, pulls us away from God or pulls another away from God should give rise to anger in the same way that we experience anger at injustice uh, performed against another. That, uh, our, so our anger should be rightly ordered and directed, but not, never at the individual to the point that we lose charity. So we may, may make a judgment at some point where we have to remove ourselves from situations that do place us in a, uh, a state where we can be harmed spiritually, but we are never to let go of our sense of the dignity of, of the other. And you know, at times this, you know, might uh, you know, certainly we are to pray, to fast for others, for their well-being. You know, seek opportunities for a kind of reapproachment. You know, in relationships uh, where or where there could be healing, uh, but again, not to immerse ourselves in circumstances where we would be pulled away from God, because then we would be of no uh, help to them or to ourselves. We never think of praying or fasting, or it's often down on the list in terms of how we view others especially when we're treated poorly or unjustly, when we're insulted, the idea of I'm going to pray for this individual, I'm going to take upon myself a a period of fasting, uh, and not in a condescending way, but in this sense that we uh, share a kind of solidarity in that spiritual struggle. And so when we see a person laboring, that we take it upon ourselves as our own, And this reveals a a deeper kind of love, a more Christ-like kind of love. Again, you know, I think this is the the value of even reading something from the Father's a paragraph a day. If only if it serves as a reminder to us of of where our minds and our hearts are to be directed. Kevin Clay writes, I think we need to see that we can be that foolish and thoughtless friend to ourselves and not just to others. We can be unwise, greedy, quarrelsome, arrogant. We need to separate ourselves from our passions and the things that stir the passions. Absolutely. Uh, that the, the uh, vision is to be directed towards ourselves, the scrutiny first towards ourselves. And, uh, and you know, we rarely look at our own need for conversion and we're more attentive to the weaknesses of others or the poverty of others. And so you're absolutely right that the, the focus is, and this will here repeated in uh, the Evergetinas as well as in Climacus, you know that we are to be keep our focus upon ourselves in that struggle. How, how else are we going to gain that kind of purity of heart that allows us to see clearly about the other? In any case, okay. so earthly affairs, hypothesis twenty four. And we begin from the life of Saint Arsenius. A magistrate came from Rome to Scytus bringing the will of a relative of Arsenius. The elder took it in his hands and was on the point of tearing it up had the magistrate not forestalled him by falling at his feet. He restrained Arsenius when he informed him that this would cause danger for the one who had brought it. Arsenius gave back the will and said, I've died before him and am no longer among the living. So don't get caught up in earthly affairs. And so when brought something uh, that is clearly worldly uh, or tied to the things of the world that can become a focus of our attention. And we all know money does that. You know, wills and inheritances, are often a source of enormous conflict within families. And so we'll hear the saints within this hypothesis speak of themselves as corpses. Why would I, a corpse, want something like a will when I'm already dead, uh, dead to the world and uh, living for Christ? And so why, why should I be concerned or desire to be pulled into such affairs? And, uh, you know, it can undo friendships, family, as as well as undo certainly uh, one's own heart and the spirit of detachment. As soon as something like this comes up, you know, money, inheritance, you know, the the avarice is a, a very difficult thing. And we've talked about this before, of it being insatiable. The more that one you know, want has the more that one desires and continually wants to feed itself. You know, even the glutton reaches his end point, you know, where he's stuffed for the moment. But that's, with avarice, it's not not the case. From the Geronticon, an elder said, even though the saints toiled here on earth, They had already received a portion of their refreshment. The elder meant by this that they were free from the cares of the world. And so even though it seems as though the saints lose a lot, and they often possess nothing. And uh, throughout the course of their life, they let more and more go they become more and more detached, and not only from worldly goods, but again from earthly affairs and Uh, from uh, uh, their own self-esteem, you know, in in the sense of their concern of how people view them, that even though they lose all these things, they begin to experience a kind of freedom within this world, tasting something of the freedom and the joy of the kingdom. And uh, it's, again, they're not stoics, uh, but the grace of God has perfected the way that they see the world. That purity of heart has allowed them to see things divine as well as earthly with a kind of clarity and what has the greater value and the enduring value. And the more one sees the preciousness of God's love, that it is the pearl of great price, then I think whatever the cost is in pursuing that uh, is seen as insignificant. And I think the more that one tastes the, the joy of the life of virtue of life in Christ, the one, the more one begins to hunger for it and the less that one has attachment for those things that are fleeting. Okay. Abba Alonios said, unless a man says in his heart, only I and God exist in this world, he will not have rest. Only God and I exist within the world. I don't want us to take that the wrong way uh, in the sense that we are oblivious to others. Uh, Because I think very quickly, this this could descend into charity or or lack of charity. Oh, little Freudian slipped there, sorry folks. (laughs) This could descend into charity. I would know true love as long as I had no contact with others. uh, the, it, very quickly can become something that's uncharitable. And the, I don't think this is what the elder means is that when we have this sense of loving God above all things, loving him with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength, then we are going to be able to love others in the way that God desires. Our love becomes rightly ordered. And so, you know, often again, God is put on an equal level or lesser level than the things of this world and the things that we love or the individuals that we love. And it's really in our giving ourselves over to him completely, we find the capacity to love others in the fullest manner. And so to keep things uh, clear in our mind, this thought of, of the monk is absolutely unmarked to live as if only God and I exist, uh, because out of that will flow a genuine love for others. Mm -hmm. Number three, an elder said, a monk who surrenders himself again to the distraction and toil of this wretched life, to giving and receiving things after he has renounced the world is like a destitute beggar who lacks even necessary sustenance and who not finding a way of feeding and clothing himself gives himself to sleep out of sluggishness. In a dream, he sees that he is rich and has cast off his dirty garments and put on bright clothing. He awakens from his excessive joy and finds that he is just as poor as he was before. So it is with the monk who is not vigilant but spends his days in distraction jeered at by his thoughts. Is consumed by the demons who mock him and suggest that his distraction and toil are for the sake of God. And that because of this, he will have rewards. At the hour when his soul is separated from his body, such a monk, pardon me, such a monk will find himself destitute and poor, devoid of all virtue. Then he will realize how many goods vigilance and attention bestow upon oneself and how many punishments are brought on by the distractions of life. So really intriguing paragraph, Um, this idea of the dreaming beggar. And the thought that often comes to mind is that, you know, uh, a starving man has no sense of taste. And similarly here, I think with this story, you know, that uh, a, a starving beggar is going to dream about having those goods, but eventually will awaken. And a monk who gives him over himself over to distractions of this world will eventually awaken, you know, perhaps at the moment of his death and moment of judgment to see the emptiness of those things, how, fle- again, fleeting they are and how valuable attentiveness to God is. And the idea of a starving person has no sense of taste, that a starving person will often eat anything uh, because of their their hunger and not be able to discern what is nourishing or not. And and so often is the case for us, you know, when we have moved away from God in our day-to-day life and we begin to experience that emptiness, we begin to and it can reach a place of starvation where we're starving for love and starving for a sense of real identity, starving for peace that is enduring. And in that starvation, we can begin to reach like the starving man for anything that's at hand, even if it is not truly nourishing and certainly not nourishing Uh, to everlasting life. And so we will gorge ourselves upon the things of this world, anything that promises to ease that hunger within us. And uh, I think this is one of the reasons that that Christ ties the practice of fasting so deeply to himself in the gospel and the hunger for his love. And we've talked about this in past groups, so I'm sorry for some of you who've heard it many times before, but Christ says uh, when he's asked about why his disciples do not fast, while John's disciples do and the scribes and the Pharisees' disciples do, and he says it's not fitting for them to fast when they have the bridegroom with them, when they have he who is the fullness of love and life with them. It's a time for feasting, for joy. And uh, But he says there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. And in that moment, Christ uh, refashions the meaning of fasting completely, that it's not simply penitential, and not only about the ordering of the appetites. It becomes focused upon our desire and our hunger for the one alone who could satisfy our hunger for love it's it comes tied to our hunger for the he who is the bread of life, who he who is the the heavenly bridegroom. And so when we fast, we are always to be praying. and in order that that longing that we experience within us, a physical hunger or of emptiness, becomes tied, to our our longing for what Christ alone can offer, and also tied to when we break the fast, in in particular, then to receive the Holy Eucharist, to be nourished upon, again, upon the the bread of life. And this is where I think we've done a kind of disservice to ourselves in uh, the brevity of our fast before receiving Holy Communion. That we, again we should feel that desire within us and the deepest part of us uh, when we receive the Holy Eucharist and that hunger and longing for the Lord that we experience in mind and in body and uh, and so we, we want to cultivate that as deeply as we, as we can and so when we get back to the the text here you know these images are all calling us to, the same thing, don't let the things of this world, good or bad, uh, take precedence over the love of God. Don't allow yourselves to be tied up in them uh, and to be careful even even when they seem justified uh, because of the wiles, again, of the evil one that he can use and will use precisely the things that seem of great importance to us. Or as he says here, that we toil for the sake of God. In fact, these are the most dangerous things for religious people. We we can be convinced that we are laboring in order to accomplish the will of God, something that's going to build up the kingdom. Let us build a city of God. You remember the the old song uh, that we have to be very careful about that because we can Convince ourselves that our labors, what we think is of value or godly or pleasing in the eyes of God, is really something that is pleasing to our own religious identity. This kind of religious uh, ego that uh, can develop for those who, who have faith, and uh, and you know we can expend a, an incredible amount of energy on things that eventually pass into nothingness or we we begin to see that they come to nothing and sometimes god even allows us to see that they end in failure when we've overly invested ourselves in them simply because they are pleasing to us on one level or another imagination reason, intellect, you know, our religious imagination. Again, what we, we think is good or pleasing or desirable to God. When it re- really what he sees is within the heart, our desire, our longing and our love for him. And so often our own ego gets in the way. Anthony, thinking of just yourself and God and a man for all seasons, St. Thomas More tries to break Richard Rich from avarice by telling him of the honor he would have as a mere teacher before God as his audience. Had Richard Rich followed this advice, he would have avoided his moral downfall later on. And maybe even in saving his soul, much of England would have been spared some of the violence of the 1500s. Acquire the spirit of peace and thousands around you will be saved. Yeah, excellent story an excellent movie, uh, Man for All Seasons about Thomas More, And, you know, Richard Rich, you know, seeking personal gain for him, esteem of office, uh, sets aside the voice of conscience. And, you know, it ends in the martyrdom, you know, of Thomas More and certainly great suffering, as Anthony says, to many uh, throughout this time period. And, uh, and again, we aren't beyond this kind of temptation, and it, it can be in far more subtle ways that we can silence the voice of conscience in order to pursue the things that we want for ourselves. Any other thoughts before moving on? Okay, let's see here. Paragraph number four, the ruler of the country once imprisoned someone from a village of Abba everyone went to the elder begging him to go and procure the man's release, the elder said leave me for three days and after this I will go. So he prayed to the Lord "O Lord do not grant me this favor, since in the future, they will never again allow me to remain here in peace. After three days, he went to the ruler and appealed to him on behalf of the imprisoned man. The ruler said to him, Abba, you would appeal on behalf of a brigand? The elder rejoiced that the ruler refused him the favor. So he could, you know, in his foresight, he could see what would lie ahead for him if he was granted this favor simply because of this dignity that he had in the eyes of, of those around him, as being a holy man, that if this ruler uh, changed his judgment simply because of who uh, this uh, because of who Appointment was, then he would become a focal point of people's desire for personal uh, benefit. And I think we even see this within the life of Christ, that there were many who followed him, but many of those were not true true followers. That, you know, when he fed the people with bread, there were a certain number of them that followed him because they were more interested in filling their bellies. And that he could be this wonder worker And uh, they could provide them with the basic needs, someone greater than Moses, whereas his miracles were to bear witness uh, to, yes, something greater, but not something worldly. And uh, as they wanted him to be, or as the devil himself wanted him, you know, to use his power to feed himself as well as others, but to use it in order to gain uh, a gain of following. And uh, and so again, we can be drawn into affairs, you know, to use our influence in such a way that then we become someone that others want to use, but for their particular benefit. And that can be true in the life of religion as it is any, anywhere else. And it can be a powerful form of temptation for those who hold either a certain office within the life of the church or because of their holy life or a particular wisdom that they have are elevated, esteemed in the eyes of others. And all these things can, people can seek to use in one fashion or another. And there can be a danger, you know, the person can get caught up in this, can find this very pleasing that others are seeking advice and counsel in one form or another, that uh, they are seen as having a particular value. And again, this is why I think we hear these stories of the monks moving further and further out into the desert, not simply to get away from people, but to get away from the curious or those who are seeking simply personal gain uh, rather than who were seeking true conversion of mind and heart. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Okay. Let her see. We can come back to anything. So if there's something that strikes you, we'll pause. Angela. I, I'm just wondering why he couldn't just say, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, because of being pressed, you know, to do it. And I think there is this kind of conflict, you know, even among uh, the elders, they're, they're being tested as well. And so he asks for that moment of time, three days, in order, I think, to put himself to the test. To the, that desire to respond to the test, and more importantly, to pray to God for light, for clarity. And so in that sense, I, I feel that it's even a more powerful exam, example, because even though a holy man, you know, I think he knows he can be tempted, and there probably was something tempting about this, you know, to be beseeched on, uh, the, to act on behalf of another. You know, and uh, the, who's been in prison for one reason or another, and again to use that that influence and the pull there to respond out of charity, you know, or whatever it might be that might have been prompting him, you know, I think he he knows that he has to put some time and distance between himself and the one who's requesting it in order to enter into prayer. And you know, this is the, the thing with the saints. Is the, they, I think they acknowledge that they're never beyond being tempted to, to take a certain path. And uh, so I'm glad when stories come up like this, when there is something peculiar to us at least from our perspective about the story, why doesn't he just say no? Because the, I think there probably was a part of him that was wondering, you know, it, would that be the charitable thing to do? You know, to re- respond to the pleas of another to help would that be, you know, an act of charity? And so he has to put it to the test, and, and ultimately places it in in God's hand. In the end, doesn't make the judgment; allows the judgment to arise out of the ruler's rolling on it. The answer is no, and so at that point, you know, he f- is free. You know, he knows that his influence is not he's not going to have any influence whatsoever. Carol Nypaver writes, if he had just said no, the people would have wondered if the brigand would have been released, if only the elder had asked. The elder removed all doubt, that's right. And so, any doubt about maybe the guilt of the individual, you know, that uh, that there wasn't anything there that was brought to light or that, that Uh, Abba was able to bring to light to change the ruler's opinion or judgment. Okay, from Abba Isaiah. My brother, know that a man cannot make progress in God unless he becomes detached from all the cares of this age. For there are two material forces that hinder the soul. One is exterior. It concerns itself with worldly work in order to provide respite for the body. The other is interior. It is the force of the passions which hinders the virtues. But the soul does not see the interior force of the passions unless it is freed from the exterior one. This is why the Lord said, whosoever he be that renounces not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. The exterior force wars from the will, the interior from the exterior action. Knowing that the will dominates both, our master enjoined us to cut it off since the spiritual mind that is the noose, the eye of the mind, the eye the heart or soul is deadened to the extent that the soul worries about exterior matters. And so the interior passions carry on their activities unhampered. So in some ways, it's almost like we're being told to work from the outside in that we can't often discern the action of the passions internally, the movements within the mind, and the noose, the eye of the heart can be darkened, that we perhaps aren't able to see those things with greater clarity. And so the Lord enjoins us to cut ourselves off from the things that feed the appetites or could feed the passions and enliven them. And so, Uh, if you want to be truly free, let go of everything and follow me. And then there's a kind of purity of heart that begins to emerge that allows uh, one to see what is necessary, what is of God, what has true value. And, uh, you know, we we often have a very difficult time in trusting that, you know, that we will be fearful and not want to let go of those things that offer us that kind of comfort, and then leave the uh, the eye, the heart, or the eye, the soul, the noose, as is noted here, uh, unenlightened. You know, if we're simply feeding the appetites and feeding the passions, and they begin to dominate then the eye, the soul is going to be darkened and not be able to see the truth at all. And so we are going to remain stuck in that position. It's only when we begin to try to strengthen the will. And this is where, again, asceticism is so important to exercise our faith, to order the appetites, to order the desires uh, on every level in in order that we might achieve that purity of heart and see things with a kind of clarity. But until then, we often remain blind to the greater truth about ourselves and about what God has revealed to us. If you remember, this is why St. John Cassian said that the immediate goal within the spiritual life is purity of heart. And so in our ascetical practices, this is what we are seeking. The ultimate goal, obviously, is deification, intimacy with God the kingdom itself but the uh the immediate goal for us is to pursue this purity of heart that we might see things as God desires us to see them and this doesn't take place without the ordering of the appetites. Rachel I left a comment above about something you addressed it seems his current reading this current reading ties into the disciple it takes to be detached not only from the things of this world but from oneself as well since our news can be darkened, idle curiosities and distractions can wreak havoc on one's life and those around them. Since the person given to these distractions will act from that skewed vision instead of the pure place of ordering everything to God and his goodwill alone. Right. That this the, the news can be darkened on multiple levels. Um, and I think the, the more internal ones, or some of these idle curiosities, distractions, can be harder for us to see, uh, especially when the noose has been darkened, uh, because we've, we are driven by our passions. And uh, I think that's why the fathers order the things that they do, and even the vices, they order them in the way that they do. They mo- move from the more uh, the passions that are rooted more in our bodily appetites to the things that are more subtle and difficult to, to see. So it's gluttony, lust, avarice, anger. You know, this, this is the movement and it's they order them in this way for a particular reason that often it is with these things that are rooted more in our bodily appetites that we struggle with the most. And, but it's there. It often can be a fierce battle that lasts for years and it can be a terrible struggle with our appetites, but nonetheless, this is the path that we are called to walk the more difficult battle is actually with. The things that Rachel was mentioning here or the spiritual struggles with things like envy and you know self esteem pride, you know all of these things are far more difficult to see within ourselves. And it's only, again, by ordering those appetites and ordering those desires more and more toward God that we begin to gain that purity of heart. And so can see these things d- that lie deeper within, and it can begin to, to battle with them. It's not as though we're not battling with them all at the same time, but there is a kind of movement within the spiritual life that has been identified pretty consistently, both East and West. Uh, in the West, it's often, they're described as the capital sins. And if you remember the word capital comes from kaput, uh, which is head, that leads to, leads to the rest of the body. Often there's a misnomer there that they're called the deadly sins, but they're not necessarily mortal sins. But they can, they all of these are the head sins that lead to those things. So lust, unchecked can lead to lustful thoughts, appetites, can lead to far more grave and serious things, fornication, adultery, and so on. And, uh, and so we need to do that, that battle with all of these head sins, capital sins, uh, in, in order that we might go deeper within, that the grace, we might open ourselves to God in a more radical fashion, to seek that deeper purity of heart. But how do we do that if we're still driven by the bodily appetites or that they're disordered in some fashion? And in our culture, I think, again, it's a very difficult thing. I've mentioned this before, St. Paisius says that those in our age who are able to maintain purity of heart are going to require the faith of the martyrs of old that we are in such a hyper-centralized culture and uh, a materialistic culture that, you know, all these things that appeal to the, uh, the senses and feed those desires are constantly put before us. And so to engage in this battle that for a monk who went into the desert, he pretty much stripped himself of all those things that we are constantly exposed to, day to in day-to-day life. But I think Pisces could see what was coming, that there was going to be a, a setting aside of all of these norms and, all, and our understanding of the fundamental dignity of the human person. And that, that was, it was going to become so fluid that there would be no moral norms by which to guide the 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 formation of the conscience of individuals in our day, and we see that you know people uh, defining reality for for themselves. They're uh, they're losing hold of anything that would be a source of guidance or light. No more guideposts to take hold of, and. Uh, and to hold on to Christ and to hold on to the spiritual tradition, to the gospel, uh, is very difficult in our day and age. And I, so I think that's why I could say an heroic faith is going to be, be needed in our times. Okay. okay. Second paragraph under C. Thus, if the soul cuts off all its volitions... It comes to disdain every activity and distraction of this world. The mind is then awakened and stands aright until it casts all the passions from its dwelling place, attending unceasingly to the soul and guarding it from returning in the future to those things which endangered it. For the soul is like a young woman has just married and who, when her husband departs for a foreign service, becomes fearless and shameless and not thinking seriously about her responsibilities in the home. When her husband comes back to his house, she immediately takes fright, leaves what she was doing and gives heed to doing her husband's will. When he returns to his house, he takes care of everything she needs and guards her unceasingly until she gives birth and rears her children. And so if we we think about this image in particular of Christ, again, the Heavenly Bridegroom, the, the more that we are conscious of the presence of the Heavenly Bridegroom and that of his unceasing watchfulness and care of us, the greater care and watchfulness that we are going to have over our own actions and our mind and our heart, the more that we are unceasingly aware of his presence, And again, if we are wrapped in the darkness of disordered desires and appetites, we are going to be immersed in that darkness and not see or be aware of his presence. So, and then we hear both become one in heart, and the woman submits to her husband, just as likewise the soul should submit to the mind, so that the mind becomes the head of the soul, as it is written in the epistle. That the husband is the head of the wife. These words of the apostle then are those are for those who are deemed worthy of becoming one in the Lord, no longer having any separation of soul and mind, just as the Lord taught in the gospel. If two of you agree, as in touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them. So again, you know, all of these things you know, spoken of about you know, the relationship between the husband and wife, the two becoming one, is really pointing to our relationship with Christ, uh, the soul being the spouse of the heavenly bridegroom. And the more that we let go of self and the clinging to identity outside of that relationship and see and understand our oneness with Christ, the, the more that we are going and the more that we agree, as, as is put here in the last sentence of the paragraph, uh, that all should be done for us, mm-hmm. that we will see things with one mind, be in one accord in terms of what has enduring and eternal value. And so all that we ask of the Lord will be given to us because our desires will be united. We will be longing for the very things that draw us towards salvation. And this is, you know, in terms of the image of marriage and what and why marriage is seen in the way that it is by the, the church, is because it's so reflective of that, of this relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And the, the two are no longer no longer two, but one. And this is how we are to see our relationship with Christ and what we are to seek. That nothing is done outside of our awareness of that oneness with him. Think about how different our life would be, you know, if at every moment in everything that we are doing throughout the course of the day that we are conscious of Christ and our oneness with him. You know, that there is going not only to be a clarity about divine things, but uh, a kind of desire, longing, urgent longing that draws us forward towards the very things that are of God. And so, you know, the the freedom, the joy uh, that one experiences is something of the freedom and joy of the kingdom. You know, when we look at the fathers, I think there is this kind of very, it's so simple. It's so simple, but there is this very clarity about the dignity of the human person in Christ, what we are to become, what our lives are are to look like, the beauty of that. Uh, And maybe it's precisely because of the simplicity with which they speak. Nothing sort of gets in the way. You know, they pre- presented the gospel to us you know, in this unvarnished fashion because it's beautiful enough in and of itself. And uh, it still might be jarring to our sensibilities, but part of that wakes us up to see the beauty of it in the end. Any thoughts about this section? That passage from Ephesians uh, often becomes a, a source of consternation, I know, in, in our day. It's a shame because it speaks equally about the man as it does the woman. We often leave off that part. Okay. Well, that brings us to 830. Does anyone have any comments or questions before we close for the evening? Okay. You know, I was having a little conversation with somebody online today, and again, it became uh, painfully aware to me why reading in this way is so important, you know. And I post a lot, and I post a lot of quotes from the saints, but there's always a danger in that, because it's out of context, and it can be something that we can, you know, consume and so we read it and say, "Ah, oh, that's beautiful," uh, but we don't see the full picture. Uh, not only the context in which these things are are said, but again, the ultimate goal, the vision of life, and you know why the ascetic life is something that's important. But you know what it promises, and uh, we are so used to re- reading in bits and pieces. I think I've mentioned this in the past. Before. I have a cousin who is a wonderful man, but he he runs a, a PR company and he posted an article once that was talking about advertising in our day and age and it was talking about the use of more and more images and less words. The fewer words the better and uh, and because people are less likely to do... Any kind of deep reading, you know, that the advertising of our days seeks to provoke people on an emotional level to pr- bring about an affective response, and that can be real, real, incredibly powerful. And I think advertising has picked up on how powerful that is, but I think we can succumb to that in our, our day-to-day life. Like spiritual memes are like modern day advertising for the religious (laughs) that you know it can speak to us on these on this emotional level but is it something that draws us to conversion of life or does it provoke the desire within us to emulate the the saints to imitate them and i don't think so i think that that sort of uh slips down the news feed as quickly as anything else that we come across. So we have to be careful in terms of how much value or import I think that we, we place there. Sometimes those things can hit deeply, you know. but I think most of the time it passes in and out of mind. Rachel has one final thought here. You mentioned that purity in our day will be like the martyrs because of the way the world is. In a beautiful homily our priest once gave, he mentioned St. Catherine of Siena, how she felt desperately that our Lord had left her in grave temptations. Yet he reassured her that not only had he not left her, but that she was more pleasing to him. So it seems that fighting to stay with our Lord won't always feel rosy. Yeah, most certainly so. That, uh, you know, I think when we experience that affliction and when we experience temptations, we often don't see that as a good thing. But I think what Catherine came to see through the words of the Lord, but what the saints came to see is that it is precisely through our battle with these temptations, our engaging in the spiritual warfare, that virtue is perfected. And in this sense, we aren't to fear it, uh, but we can be under no illusions that it is a spiritual warfare. And we have to engage in the battle, and that it does require great grace and great faith. And one final thing from Anthony: the images themselves are very important in post-rational environment when we when the senses and memory are wounded. The Serbian Orthodox Church on YouTube has a seven-part series on the icon and the contrast of iconic images versus images that assault us. Yes, you know, the memory I've I've often thought about that, memory and imagination are incredibly powerful aspects of who we are as human beings, but they're also some of the most challenging things to purify if we think about it. You know, the the wounds that we bear, you know, from being treated poorly or the the wounds that we bear from our own sin, the memory of past sin often afflicts us more than even the things that are right before our eyes that, and so to purify imagination requires a depth of, of prayer and vulnerability before God, that he can go to the deepest recesses of the, of the human heart uh, in order to purify the imagination. And so this is why we, we sh- should never want to expose ourselves to those things, because once we have an image in the mind and the memory, you know, it's very difficult to dislodge it, even when we don't want it. Okay. All right, wonderful comments and questions. We'll stop there for the, for the night. Uh, again, pray for me. Uh, we uh, I still don't know yet uh, all the details. I have a feeling it's coming right around the corner. But of course, I've had that feeling for the last couple months. But uh, but pray, I think this week some there's going to be some clarity about some things and uh we have some good news some things have been rolling along uh with the philicalia ministries we finally got all of the uh paperwork from the government that we needed to set things up as uh, a a business and open up an account for philicalia ministries uh and so ren is working on the new website for it Uh, within the next 24 hours We should be able to start receiving contributions towards Philadelphia ministries and uh, Ren is going to continue to develop the website so that everything's in in one place that people can find both city of desert and then all the groups uh, that we have. And uh, right now I think PayPal uh, is, is working is set up and working. Uh, some of the other ways of giving, it's just taking a little bit, bit of time. But we have the accounts set up. And again, in, in about 24 hours, uh, all the different ways that we're setting up for people to give should be functional. Thank you, everybody, again, uh, for a great group tonight. And why don't we close, as always, with our Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. 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 Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.